0: Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful um, to have the opportunity to come together like this. As your people, bound together in fellowship, in Christian love, studying your word, wrestling through the hard parts, enjoying the parts that are more straightforward. And we just pray, as we do each week, that your Holy Spirit would guide us and shape us um, uh, going forward. Because really, really, in the end, we all do desire to be ever truer disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I think everything's working. True, Patty? We're on. Okay, so where I want to, where, in, oh, hi Andy, so um, I want to start in chapter 14, okay, I want to start in chapter 14, um, which is about worship, okay, and we got a little ways in, but I want to go back to the 6th verse, because I think we got a few, some verses past that, but let's just go back to 14.6 and... and be reminded of what Paul has to say about, about worship and ourselves. He says, now brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, that's this, an, I'll call it an, like an angelic language, a prayer language, which makes no sense to anybody who isn't, it might not make sense to the person who's saying the prayer, but definitely not to anybody else. If I, 14.6. If I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you? It will be like somebody showing up here and speaking a language that none of us know. There must be some, right? If I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy, some word from God, something or word of instruction, something that you can understand. Right? And, and, and learn from, take to heart. Um, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's the distinction in the notes? I just thought of the old song from the 40's, I think it was called Johnny One Note. That's all he could sing was one note? Well, he could hardly sing a song, right, if all he could sing was one note. Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? Nobody. I was in the military. They just, oh, gosh, I remember going to summer camp at that cross, cross the loudspeaker that played the recording of, of Reveille at some abominable hour like 5.15 and you had like six minutes to be down dressed for physical training. Yep. Those who know me know that that was a difficult period in my life. <laughs> So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. Acts 2. On Pentecost, what happens is not this type of tongue speaking, though people get this confused. What happens in Act 2 is the Holy Spirit arrives and everyone stands up and they start speaking in actual languages that they don't know. And think of it as what? Think of it as the reverse of what happens at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. At the Tower of Babel, God scatters the people and gives them all these different languages, right? But on Pentecost that day, everyone can understand They they, they all hear people outside. They hear the good news spoken in their own language by people who who can't know it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign that the Holy Spirit has arrived. This is different. Nobody understands this tongue speaking. It's a private thing. It's a private thing. You will... Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Right? That's why we like Google Translate. Universal translators on Star Trek and all that kind of stuff that translates languages so that we can all communicate and talk. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, remember that's who these people are, that's what they're focused on, the gifts of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, they're very spiritualized people. Try to excel in those that build up the church. Okay, there we go. The two-by-two matrix. Do what builds up the church. Do what is a good witness to others. Avoid what tears down the church. Avoid what is a poor witness to others. What are things that tear down the church, for example? Idle gossip and speculating about things that people don't know anything about. Which I've seen on display some in the recent days. So that's not helpful. We, we work to build up the church and we work to be a good witness to Christ. And we try to do best we can to avoid what tears down the church and avoid what is a poor witness to Jesus. Okay, so thoughts, questions about what we where we've gone, that's kind of a where we were last week deal. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Right? So if there's the this I'll call it this angelic prayer language, and it does nobody any good unless the one who does it, or maybe somebody else, can interpret it can say to people well you know here's 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 what it is for if I pray in a tongue my spirit prays but my mind is unfruitful cuz your mind can't engage a language that you don't understand if somebody if if you somebody's preaching you a sermon in chinese chances are, you're going to be making shopping lists. They might, that might happen if they're preaching to you in English, I understand. <laughs> I've been in the church a long time, <laughs> but certainly, yeah. But the
1: Catholic Church spoke in Latin for yeah.
0: The Catholic Church spoke, used Latin for decades, which people didn't understand. So what was, what was the good of that, you see? they could hear the rhythm of the words but most people didn't understand it and so what did that end up resulting in? This right now we're in the 60th anniversary of the convening of Vatican II. Part of what came out of the Vatican II was the saying of mass in Roman Catholic churches in the language of the people. English here, German in Germany and the rest of it. And since Vatican II there have been elements of the Catholic Church that wanted to keep to the old ways and use the old Latin Mass. Right? Yes. Um, and there we go. So, that's how it is with us, folks. But, but that's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the Gospel of Jesus Christ is not something to be the good news of Jesus. The good news about Jesus, is not something to be felt. It is something to be known. Something to be known. And, And how can people know it if it isn't preached? And if they don't hear it. And how can they hear it if it isn't preached? And how can they be preached if there isn't someone to preach it? And that's Romans 10. Because... There is there is content to the good news about Jesus. The next chapter in the book is all about in this letter, is chapter fifteen, about the resurrection. There's content to understand about the resurrection, so you can truly understand what God has done. So, okay, verse thirteen. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. So for Paul, who does say that he, that he prays in tongues, that is not the sum of his prayer life. He will, he will pray in tongues, but he will pray intelligibly. He will pray prayers that he's either thinking in language, because you can't think without language, actually, or that he will say, or that he could write. So both of those are there. And I suspect it is because in Corinth, they are very much taken with this first, tongues speaking the angelic language and the rest of it they're anxious to they're happy to just sort of leave behind and he says no no he's he's not denigrating the tongue speaking but he's saying that's only part and and it's limited and it's private and even in private you need to have the intelligible prayer you need to pray God in thanksgiving and you need to pray intercessory prayers which are prayers on the behalf of others and so all of that takes actual language whether you're thinking it speaking it or writing it okay verse 16 otherwise When you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? Isn't that interesting? Right? That's interesting. That makes sense. (laughs) He's saying, look, if somebody is there and you're all gathered together and they launch into their tongue speaking, well, you can't very well say amen when they finish because you don't know... (laughs) I mean, amen says, is basically, yeah, 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 I agree, I whatever, yeah, yeah. Well, if you have no idea what's really going on, how could you say amen? Since they do not know what you are saying, you are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. The you are, you are giving thanks well enough, you're the tongue speaker, you're the person there, and it's, it's a good and wonderful thing, but... How is it helping anybody else? It's not. It's, not, it's not, It can't. It can't build up the church, and it can't even be a good witness to Jesus. But it's not. But it's a good thing. Yes. I heard of Scott. I I'll oh well. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll come back. We'll, we'll talk about how it's confusing. Okay. In the Bible, there are basically three periods when there are what you and I would call supernatural or miraculous things happening. And they are times when God is working big time in the world, like with Moses and then with Elijah. And now in these first decades of Jesus and immediately thereafter the apostles. When we'll call that, we'll call the time of the Apostles, we'll call it the Apostolic Age. So then the question is, did tongue speaking and other I'll call them miraculous signs of of God's work um, like tongue speaking, did they continue after the Apostolic Age? Okay? On that question Christians are divided. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ, Some hold that they do, some hold that they don't. We're all brothers and sisters. Um, The Methodist Church got this right in saying, look, if you speak in tongues, don't look down on your Christian brother or sister who doesn't. It doesn't make you spiritually superior. And to the ones who believe that it ended in the apostolic age, be modest in your certainty, maybe. Be humble, okay? Because, gee, there are things we probably get wrong. But that's when it began. The-, the tongue speaking. There have always been in, in really, in religions across the globe, there have been these, these mystical states that people can put themselves in, okay. Where unusual things happen, and sometimes it's aided by you know peyote or <laughs> <LSD>. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, LSD. yes, LSD, maybe whatever. So, so it's, it's, but yes, they are for the Christians in the first century a sign of the apostolic age, to my knowledge. This type of tongue speaking does not appear in the Gospels. I think that's true. Yeah, it's only after Pentecost. And it's not even the same thing that happens after Pentecost. It is a sign of some things that happen in order to fuel the work of the apostles and demonstrate that God is in all of this. And then by 100 A.D. the question is, does it continue or does it not? And Christians disagree. Oftentimes, vehemently. Okay, well, okay, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. So, be careful about the vehemently part of it. Uh, Yes? Yeah, there are charismatic Catholic churches. Charismatic means they do tongue speaking and stuff like that. There are charismatic Catholic churches, charismatic Methodist churches, charismatic Presbyterian churches. There it's something that happens within denominations. And and so denominations have to come to a conclusion. Well, what are we going to do about this? And they if they think they have to do anything. And so I personally think that the Methodists, because we're committed to finding the middle way, came up with, yeah, okay. You tongue speakers don't look down on those who don't. It doesn't mean you're spiritually superior. And to those who think it's just babbling, stay humble, because you might be wrong. So, Evie. Yeah. <laughs> it just um,
1: the person who is speaking tongue doesn't
0: know what you're No, I didn't say that. Huh? They they might. You know, do they know? <sighs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up five seconds, maybe seven seconds. <sighs> if you read Paul here, I think Paul's experience is that, even, that his mind is unengaged in that process. So for Paul, it is ecstatic experiences that generate... Some sort of sound and language, but the mind's unengaged. I think that's what he says in this paragraph. Okay, and then he goes on to say, "Well, it's obvious he can't help anybody else." It might—I mean, there's reasons that he would engage in it, right? Paul, um, N.T. Wright has said that he has that—that that he has spoken in tongues. This is not something I've ever come close to. <laughs> close to experiencing, but I will be respectful of those who do, because otherwise I'm driving deeper and deeper divisions where they really don't need to belong. This is, this, whether tongue speaking is genuine or not, is not one of the essentials. So, tongue speaking in our day. No, I have no, 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 no question if it was genuine here. Does that make it less confusing, Evie? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> I shouldn't have even asked that last question, should I? <laughs> so he says finally to them, he says, You are giving thanks well enough with your tongue speaking, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you.
1: Why?
0: would he say that? I think he sees value in it. I think for him, it is a way for him to engage... In, in communion with God at a deep level, right? Do
1: you think he knows what he's talking
0: about? I do I think, think he knows he's what he's talking about. Well, do, do I think that he is translating the tongue speaking into words all the time he's doing it? No, I don't, yeah. because he says I do, I, I do it both ways, right? You have the tongue speaking and then you have the intelligible prayer with that words would be around okay, in your mind, or, or you say, or you write. Um, for in the first century, this was, as far as I know, tongue speaking was something that the Jews had some familiarity with, but they would you think of it as an angelic prayer language kind of thing. Because it is, it is in, in all world religions, there's a small portion of that said religion that engages in lots of what are typically called mystical practices. In Islam, it's the Sufis. You ever heard people refer to Sufi Muslims? Sufi Muslims are the segment of Islam that is particularly focused on mystical practices. You ever heard of the Kabbalah? In Judaism, same thing. We have our mystics in the Christian faith, historically, and, and so I think for our purposes we need to, since this is not a charismatic church, I've never heard anybody saying they want to do this, I don't know if you trained yourself to do it, or, these are not questions I'm asked. I'm asked a lot of questions, but not, but not these. And so what do we take away from a passage like this? What do we take away? That what we do in the church needs to help others. It needs to edify others. We need to build up the church. We need to be a good witness to Jesus. If you're just drawing... <laughs> If Let's say you stand up, and you want to speak, and you're droning on meaninglessly for minute after minute after minute, and people are tuning out, tuning out, tuning out. You need to catch your breath and sit down. Because you're not helping anymore. I don't know, that's one way I might... I might you know, Paul is very much focused on what? Building up these churches. And the Corinthians are very much focused on each of them building up themselves. But
1: isn't that a form of
0: control when you, when you continue to just dialogue and dialogue and dialogue? And you mean just talk and talk and talk?
1: That and also focus on the, the one thing that you know is
0: holy. Totally. Sure, Correct. it can be a form of control and it's just not how... What will build up the church? What will be a good witness to Jesus? That's Paul. That's this section. And he's trying to get them off the tongue speaking, not because it's bad, but because that's all they're focused on. How can you edify others if that's all you're focused on? Okay. So you've, you've, you've had Pentecostal friends who say to you it's a way that they praise God much like we would say hallelujah. The difference is hallelujah is not unintelligible. It's just, it's just Hebrew, right? So, so, so that's the difference. But are the Pentecostals our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes, in fact, are the Pentecostals Wesleyan cousins of ours as Methodists? They are indeed, which we will talk about Sunday week in my class. Okay, so, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words. It could be any number. Five! Five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Why? (laughs) Because... You, you hear him saying, look, Corinthian people, I know that you're really into this, but just, just do it at home. It's not it's, You're not going to help anybody here. Speak to one another. Learn. Remember in the letter he said, I, I want to give you milk. I want to give you meat, but I have to give you milk because you're, just, you're not growing in your faith. You're too focused on all this stuff that doesn't get to the heart of the good news about Jesus. You're cheating yourself.'" by focus on these ecstatic practices, these spiritual practices. Not that they're bad, but they've, they're completely out of proportion for the Corinthians. Okay, I've noticed lately that I'm using my hands to speak more and more. I, I attribute that to my time on Staten Island and all your Italian friends. <laughs> I came home from Geno's and I can't control my hands anymore. So he said, he saw, now listen, he, he, now he turns a little bit harsh. You would not want this said to you. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be in, infants, sure. You don't need to get schooled in evil. That's the stuff that happens after midnight. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking... And you're thinking, be adults. One of the great sadnesses of the Christian church in America is that in response to attacks a hundred years ago, many portions of the American church sort of closed in and sort of closed their minds and started to print up bumper stickers that said, like, the Bible says that I believe it, that's it. And and that's not enough. It's not enough. We are adults. We come to Scripture, this stuff written 2,000 years ago, and Paul would not write the same letter to us today. So there is real adult-type glorious work to be done in trying to hear Paul well and then and bring it forward to our day now. But there was a great book written by a Christian historian named Mark Knoll about 20 years ago called The Closing of the Evangelical Mind and he just said you know we, we've got to head in a different direction because we are just we're just losing our witness to the world and um, I think that's I, I think that's true. So he says, in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. Romans twelve two, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. He could use he could be talking by the uh, lots of things by the renewing of your minds, so that you will know what the will of God is what is good and pleasing to God, right? These are things to be known, not, not just felt. We live in a time full of feelings. Well, feelings are great, feelings are real, I, I get all that. But, but we're adults and, and particularly at St. Andrew because St. Andrew is filled with a lot of educated, thoughtful people. If we took up all of the years of post-high school, post-college education at St. Andrew and added them up, it would be a staggering number. So we can do all this work, right? We can do this work, and, and Paul wants us to. He says, In the law it's written, With other tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the, says the Lord. The Corinthians, I think Paul would basically say, they're not even listening to me. They're not even listening to me. You can hear God speaking in lots of ways. I'm taking Monday class through Isaiah. Many, many powerful passages in Isaiah. Um, uh, This is one of them from Isaiah 21. God speaking to his people, through other people, um, and they don't hear him. It's a little bit like in the opening chapters of Romans, Paul is writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he's talking to them about the Gentiles. And he says, I'm going to paraphrase to the nth degree. He says, you have this idea that you are ethnically special because you have the blood of Abraham flowing through your veins, However, look at the Gentiles. They've never been given the law. They don't know what the law of Moses is. They don't even know there is a law of Moses. And yet, they, so many of them keep it better than we do. That's a word of, wow. No wonder he got chased out of you know, synagogues from place to place, right? That, that's a hard word, but it's a word they needed to hear. This passage of Isaiah has spoken to a people, God's people, called to be God's people to accomplish a purpose, right? Not just for themselves, but for the sake of the whole world who would not listen to God and ran away from God and ran into the arms of all these pagan gods and goddesses. And the Corinthians, I think, are very why do i i read this letter i think they are very very self confident in their hyper spirituality and i think paul's very frustrated by that and so that I, that's why he's scolding at several points in the letter trying to you know the proverbial two by four upside the head okay Verse 22, tongues then are a sign, hmm, not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, the word of God is not for unbelievers but for believers. So the tongue speaking would be this sort of miraculous thing that might be a sign of something for those who have yet come to know Jesus because people like people like miracles, they want to show I know they do, but Paul's about growing the church, instructing the church. So what needs to be said is what will build up the church and what has helped the believers and helped to teach them the, the, the content of the good news and what it means to be a Christian and how to grow in their discipleship. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers of unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Right? So now he says, okay, a good thing can be turned into a bad thing. How? In a house church of 20 to 30 people. How many of you have ever been to Pompeii? If you've been to Pompeii, you've probably walked on some of the sidewalks and seen, seen some of the little homes. They're right, they're right there on the sidewalks. And so these folks would be meeting in one of these open atriums. okay? And people out on the street could hear. So if 20 or 25 people are gathered in worship and they're talking and they're praying and they're saying, you know, I I think God told me this, and then several of them and more of them all start speaking in this ecstatic tongues, unintelligibility stuff, it would attract interest, but then the folks would go away thinking that they're all crazy in there. Okay. Worship needs to be, what, orderly. It needs to be something where if somebody comes in the back door for the first time they can sit down and not be freaked out by. I think that's what he's saying. inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, that is, they're talking about the Word of God, it's all intelligible, it might be a little heated or whatever, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all meaning that perhaps what they will hear are words spoken that they will understand and will help them to realize their need for the good news. Right? Being convicted of sin is fine, but it is the starting place to grasping the need for the good news. Sadly, we live in a time in which vast numbers of people, I think, have lost an understanding of the universality of sin. And so they don't even know anymore that they need to be rescued and they wonder why so many things go wrong. Verse 24 again. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare to them, to God. Doesn't mean they walked in the door and fell on their knees and started spilling everything that they had. You can't mean that. It's not what people do. Paul's driving home the importance of this old word. I heard that and I was convicted. Right? Didn't use that word very much in my Episcopal upbringing, but in my Methodist time in the last 50 years. You know, I've been a Methodist for 50 years, more than 50 years. Heard heard that word from time to time, and um, I know my Baptist friends hear that word. It's a word about coming to understand that you need to be rescued, that you need to be saved, and you're not gonna you're not gonna get there unless it's intelligible. So they will fall down and they will worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. When they encounter this worship and it's understandable, and they they are convicted. Now worship is not it's not like what we do. We have long traditions that are built up with the liturgy and the rest. But there are liturgical elements in what they do. Remember in 1 Corinthians. Seventeen, we encountered the communion liturgy that's basically the same as we use today. There are other pieces of that that go back to the first century like that. So, all right, how we doing? Good. We're cool? Okay. Fire away. <laughs> Fire away. <laughs> okay. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together... Each of you has a hymn. Might be a psalm, might be something else. Set to music, perhaps. A tune. You know, John Wesley, as I understand it, never actually wrote any music. He wrote words and then found tunes to set them to. Or a word of instruction. That's always good. As a teacher, I like that. A revelation. A tongue. Or an interpretation. He isn't leaving tongues out, he just wants, what would my, what my, my dear mother would say, all things in moderation. <laughs> Everything must be done. How? So that the church may be built up. If, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most, three should speak one at a time, and somebody has to interpret. That's orderly. That avoids chaos. Brother Tom, Sister Sally, and Brother Barnabas want to speak in tongues, and they do, well, they do it one at a time, so it doesn't get chaotic, and somebody has to interpret, or it does no good for anybody else in the gathering that they have, in somebody's home. Okay. Verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. In other words, if there isn't somebody there to interpret the tongue speaking for everybody else, just keep it to yourself. I don't know. I, I, sort, of, I, sort, of, I sort of get this myself. Yes. Well, okay, so... Okay, so the question is, if... Does the tongue speaker know what they are speaking? It seems to me that Paul in these passages is a little bit both ways. And I would fall on the side of the prayer language being... An unintelligible praise language even to the speaker. And that's why they that's why they, they need this interpreter. But the interpreter well. It's somebody else. And so yes. Now it's in the very few experiences I have in charismatic churches, the interpreter the, the tongue speaking is never something interpreted as being terribly specific. You know, like, Brother John, would you park your car somewhere else next Sunday, please? <laughs> it's something more like, God loves you. Right? So, I, you know, this is this is why what I want you to take away from this section is the need for worship to not be chaotic, to have some order and structure to it in such a way that it builds up the believers, one great theologian of our day calls worship God's gymnasium, where God works on us to build us up and teach us and shape us, and um, that it's not a place for chaos. The worship itself, the corporate worship, corporate by meaning involving communal worship, should be something that attracts outsiders, inquirers, in current parlance, seekers, not drives them away. It's not a private deal. It's a public deal. It has to be a public deal. Why? Because we are called to preach the good news, to be witnesses of Jesus, and make disciples. And if worship is a private deal amongst a closed-off set of believers that don't want anybody to know what's going on, that can't be part of what Paul envisioned for any of his house churches. Did I answer your question well enough, yes. friend? Yes. Okay. Right there, so, the interpreter, the, the, the mumbler. The tongue speaker, said. don't say mumbler, the tongue speaker, Andy. Okay, the
1: tongue speaker doesn't
0: know what he's saying. Yeah. But the interpreter is the only one in the room that thinks he knows what he's saying. Right. That has How been. Do we know that? Because you, because you trust in the process. And when the person gets up and says, God is love, that's a little bit, God loves you, that's a little hard to argue with. That's the practicalities of it for me. Wow. <laughs> if we grew up, if some of us grew up in a different tradition, such as the Pentecostal churches, we would be having a different discussion about all of this. But we didn't grow up in those traditions. <laughs> Okay, so. Can I insert this? Yes, you may. <laughs> Please, Susan. In the 50s, there were lots of, of
1: um, these tents would be put up. Yeah. Revival, revival Revival tents. Yep. And my mother would take me to them. And people would do this
0: tongue speaking inside the revival tent. Yes. Come to my class at 11 o'clock a week from Sunday, and we will talk about the Great Awakening in America and the birth of Pentecostalism and people falling in faints on the floor and barking and all this other stuff that would happen in these.
1: Elmer
0: Gentry. Elmer Gentry in these revival settings you know now now that is not what okay what paul i believe paul would say no people falling on the floor floor barking is not the way to attract people to the worship of christ i'm confident about that so but i there even in the Great Awakening with all of this stuff happening up in New York State, it was principally, it was principally like eastern Pennsylvania, upper New York State. Um, It's where Mormonism was born. Mormonism was born out of that same kind of movement and stuff. They're still my brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay? That, the brother, the family of Christ is a really, really big tent. And so... If there's things that I don't understand, maybe, and Jesus will straighten me out about someday, that's okay. But I do think what Paul is focused on is order, the avoidance of chaos, because the Corinthians are too consumed with these, their hyper-spiritual sense of what it means to be a Christian. Scott, how do you know it's- it's not, uh, it's not up to me to make that judgment. Yeah, but how do you... I, I don't have to make that judgment. Okay. I mean, really I don't. I don't have to make that judgment because I can't even understand what they're, what they're doing. You know, the, the few times that I have seen it, uh-huh. I just sort of go with it, you know? And it's, I don't get it, okay? I don't get it. But I don't have to make any judgments about it, really. Again, the Methodist Church caution is a really good one. For you who don't get it, well, don't disrespect it. Because they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And for those of you who would speak in tongues, don't think it makes you superior. Which is what happens. And it's kind of where these people are. Okay, So I, I, I've always thought that on that particular issue, which was tackled by the UMC, 40 years ago when they could still accomplish things, it was, <laughs> it was pretty good. Okay, now. Okay, so he's given some very specific advice. Then he says in verse 29, two or three prophets should speak. These are people bringing forth the word of God, inspired by God to say something. You and I are not asked to make judgments about that in our day to day life. What is the difference? What's, the diff- what's a key difference between them and us? This is like a quiz. This is like quiz day. What's the key difference between them and us? Bingo. Bingo and Mr. Rich Morgan. Ding, 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 ding. The New Testament, they don't have any New Testament. They don't have anything like this. The early church took these writings and embraced these writings and none others, though some of the others were good candidates, embraced these writings as sacred and inspired and the revelation of God in a way that no other writings are. So for... Many Christians, including me, if I want to talk about God's revelation, I will come to Scripture. Now, if somebody comes to me and they say to me, well, Scott, you know, God spoke to me last night. I would say, well, that's cool. You know, what did God tell you? And they tell me. The test I will subject that to for its genuineness is not a matter of my heart. I will subject it to what I find in Scripture right because i i don't want to deny that god might speak to people today i don't know but whatever that is it does not rise to the level of of these writings because these writings are not though they might be the work of one person they they don't end up with us by the work of one person it is the it is the work of the community of christians over several centuries that has given us these writings as sacred and inspired. And so that's different than me just asking myself, well, do I think that so-and-so is genuine or not? My my test is always going to be to take it to Scripture. If somebody came to me and said, God told me last night, you know, Jesus isn't really God. I would say, well, no, you're just wrong, okay? You might think God told you last night. I think you had too many tacos, (laughs) or margaritas, (laughs) or or whatever. That
1: that was Luther's approach.
0: That was Luther's approach. Luther said, who said all kinds of things that upset his Roman Catholic um, brothers and sisters, and he was of course Roman Catholic himself. He and and he said, look, I'll, I'll change anything I say. As long as we argue it out on the basis of scripture, and does that does that end every discussion? No, because you can't have a Bible, you can't have a, a bumper sticker that simply says the Bible says it, I believe it. That's it. It's not that simple, and you are about to see for yourselves it's not that simple. If you spend much time in the Bible, you see that it's not that simple. It is. It we. There, we have to be theologically informed by Scripture and theologically informed when we come to Scripture. Another question. Yes? There's one thing that's always bothered me about parts of
1: the Bible. They're talking about judgment. Like that we should judge this person or that person because they think this, and we should judge them because they think that. And there are some things about judgment I didn't think we were supposed to judge. I thought we were supposed to let everyone.
0: Okay, So, judgment. What do we mean by judgment? And, and is it just everybody feeling their own way forward? There are different ways to think of the word judgment. So, if you take, like, the judgment that should be left to God, which is basically the condemnation of a person, that really should not be something that we do, right? Because we, we will, chances are we're going to get it wrong. But, we do have to exercise good judgment judgment in many parts of our lives. Let me give you a few few easy examples. You have to exercise a good judgment every time you hired a babysitter for your kids about who that person was going to be, right? You teach your kids to exercise a good judgment when it comes to managing themselves and managing their marriages and managing their lives and all the rest of it. One of the four cardinal virtues is prudence, which is basically good judgment, understanding the consequences of one's actions. And when it comes to the Christian faith there are essentials that we all need to agree to. And if you meet somebody who says, well, ah, 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 I don't think Jesus is God. We should not merely send them on their way with a hidey-ho. We should, well let's talk about that, let's sit down and talk about why that is one of the essentials of the Christian faith. And what happens if you follow that all the way to its conclusion? That's what the great creeds do. Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. Those provide the essentials for the, for, the, for the faith. And when Paul says, be thinking adults, what he means is, okay, be smart enough to learn what is essential and what isn't. It is essential to know that Jesus is fully and completely God. Though not all of God, it's not essential to settle the argument about whether you baptize infants or eight-year-olds, which has been with us now for 500 years. It's not essential to uh, to 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 settle the differences between exactly how we understand communion. It's important, but you see that essential pile is actually kind of small. It's not a big pile. It's a it's a smaller, profound, but essential pile. So was that helpful? Okay, so, so what Paul wants us is to be discerning. And too often Christians get in big fights over things that are not essential as opposed to trying to find ways and new ways to do things and compromise and just... Okay, let's... We gotta, we, 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 we've got to move forward. So, anyway, there we go. What you're saying
1: is, we agree in the essentials, but on the periphery, do whatever you want to do. Think whatever you want to
0: think. And the essentials? No, no the In essential. the essentials, unity. And the non-essentials, liberty. Yeah, okay, okay. okay, there you go. So, just so if somebody came to me and said, you know, I think all children need to be baptized at the age of four years and six months. Period. I would look at them, and I would say, well, that's certainly plenty odd, but... (laughs) So be it. it. Are you going to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Yes. You're going to raise them to be a Christian? Yes. You're going to teach them to be what a disciple is? Yes. Okay. Cool. If somebody came to me and said, you know, as a Methodist bishop did not that long ago, Melvin Sprague, said, you know, Jesus wasn't resurrected. I would go boom. No. No, why are you still a Christian? That's essential. There is no Christianity without Jesus' resurrection. So it goes into the essential pile. That And again, if you really want to get a larger view of what that essential pile is, just turn to the creeds. That in the back of the hymnal. That will give you a lot of it, most of it. The Articles of Religion in the Methodist Church, the Statement of Faith that we get from the EUB. You could use the Baptist. Most of their stuff is... Just the essentials. I don't think there's too much Baptisty stuff in their um, mission, statement of mission. You know what I mean. <laughs> okay, okay. Verse 29. If two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. That's very specific, isn't it? This is a man writing to people he knows. He knows all the people in these house churches. He is giving them as specific instruction as he possibly could. It's sort of like when somebody walks out on Easter morning and tells everyone to scoot closer together, please. It's that it's that specific. He says, For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Don't all stand up and start telling everybody what you want everybody else to hear at the same time, because then what happens? You won't, Nobody will hear anybody. Orderly. Some structure around it. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. If you think you're bringing a word of God you've got some control over when and how you say that. For God is not a God of disorder but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Peace, not chaos. There is chaos and then there is God's creation. God's creation is not about chaos. Our lives should not be about chaos. Our worship should not be about chaos and disorder. Okay. Scott,
1: you remember I told you that I, I went for a couple of months to a charismatic church. Yes. And to me I found it often chaotic because one it was a large church Big big church. That one would get up and speak. Okay in tongues and I'll You're, be honest, Yes. And I almost
0: freaked out. <laughs> so Patty's telling about an experience she had. In a, and when she, having grown up Roman Catholic, she went to a church that was charismatic. And it freaked her out. Because it wasn't orderly. It
1: wasn't orderly. And then he did get to speak. He's no longer with us in tongues. So I almost feel like Paul is telling these folks. And again, I do believe definitely back in this day, this was obviously, this was a huge problem. We were taking a lot of time going over this tongue speaking stuff.
0: A lot of problems in, problem. in, in Corinth. Not necessarily the other churches.
1: Well, as you were doing this all today, the one thing that kept coming to me was he was telling them, like, you know, everybody has their own gifts. None's better than somebody else's, and it reminded me of Ephesians, where he said, you know, are we are saved by grace of God.
0: Yes. No one should boast. Yes. Because it's nothing that you did, or the fact that you can speak in tongues and he can't, or. See, so so, Pat, Pat is talking about having had an experiences with people who speak in tongues and seeing their tongue speaking is like the ultimate thing that they need to reach for in their Christian life. That is not something Paul would agree with and it would result in a sense of superiority because you end up saying, well, I made it to this mountaintop. Now I'm speaking in tongues. Maybe one day you will be able to as well as you're looking down at them as they're making their way up this mountain. And that's wrong. That's not what Paul is writing in, verse, in chapters 13, 14, and 15. It is one, in the apostolic age, it is one gift among many. And it's limited because it can't help anybody else. That's the problem. And so focusing on it or seeing it as a measure of one's devotion to Jesus or one's discipleship or these whatever, can't be. It just can't be. And it's not. Paul makes it very clear that that's not, that's not the case. Particularly in the third world. Okay, but the third world is where Christianity is growing. Yes, it is. So, what does that say? Okay. Well, that what so so people so,
1: are believing in the charismatic approach to their
0: religion. You know, life. in in the third world, Christianity is growing. Seven Char- percent. Yeah, charismatic world. churches are much more common in the third world, Africa, Asia, and so on. Yep. Um, I, I think one one advantage that they have in their whole approach to this is that we westerners have largely lost any sense of something larger than ourselves they have they do not they have a they have a strong sense of something just on the other side of the veil we westerners we we've kind of lost a lot of that i heard people talk about that in the context of harry potter at least one of the things Harry Potter brought was the sense that there is a world beyond the world that I'm seeing and touching right now. So, and I, I think that if I were to visit charismatic African churches and they asked me, I would keep my mouth shut until I was asked. That's always good advice. If they asked me, I'd say read 1 Corinthians 14, find ways to keep it orderly, not chaotic, and understand that what you do needs to be intelligible to yourselves and to others. Because it's easy to get consumed with this kind of thing, it just is. You can look at human history and you can see it. Do
1: you think to you?
0: Would they listen to me? Oh, heck no. <laughs> I'm an old white man from Plano, I don't know. I have a lot of, I have a lot of African friends on Facebook who, who have, you know, would they, I, I don't know, you know, they have their struggles. We have our struggles. We, we struggle against a secular culture that wants, a lot of which wants nothing to do with us. And indeed even wants to mock faith in general, much less Christian faith. In Africa, you, you listen to the bishops down there talk, they say our struggle is against Islam and it's a struggle over lives. It's a struggle over lives. So when you talk to us about doctrine and all these things that you want to do, we, 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 have to, we have to struggle against Islam every day. Nigeria, an example. You know, Nigeria is going to be one day it's gonna surpass us in size, in population. got like about 230, 240 million people in Nigeria now. And so the Christians in Nigeria are in a day-to-day struggle against Islam. And sometimes that is fought. Sometimes it's actually fought. And so I'm not gonna tell them. You know, and it, it is again, let's just say you You do your worship in a way that isn't consistent with 1 Corinthians 14. Well, I don't necessarily need a bunch of people going through my life telling me all the ways in which I'm not consistent with this and that in the New Testament either. What does Paul say? He says, I see in the glass dimly now. We understand things dimly. We're called to understand better. We're called to think better. But... We need to be humble. Peter writes, be prepared to offer a reason for the hope within you, but do it with gentleness and reverence, humility. Those are the words to keep in mind. And if we all did that, I think we would be much better off. And so look, it is one fifteen and good place to stop. Good place to stop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you would read ahead, you can see that I'm going to I no, I'm going to help you with I'm going to help you with that next paragraph. Come next week. Next week, baby. Next week. You don't have to cut it out of your bibles, but we'll talk about it next week. Maybe. Okay, I'll I'll tr- I'll 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 try to be helpful. For those who are going to anxiously look ahead to next week. Read those next few verses, 34, 35, 36, and then go back and read 11.5. And how do you put those two things together where Paul is advising, instructing that women who pray and prophesy in the church should keep their heads covered? How do you take that and make it work alongside the verses 34, 35, 36, 37? And what's going on? So tantalize your mind with that And we will come back next week and talk about it. How about that? Okie dokie. Okie dokie. So would you pray with me? (laughs) Gracious Lord. Wow. It's a journey through these letters. And and it's a journey to try to hear Paul well, talk about it in the context of his day, talk about it then in the context of our own. But this is glorious work. This is just glorious time that we spend together doing this. For it's through this that we can grow as disciples and come to a deeper understanding, hopefully greater humility, and more sure of the truth of the gospel about your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.